We're going to continue today in a series entitled Redeeming Relationships. Uh, it was about a month ago, Pastor Cyrus and I were talking about this idea of talking about redeeming relationships, the relationships we have with one another, marriage relationships, whatever relationships might, that might be. And we talked about, okay, I'll talk about this. You can talk about this. And we said, you know what? We should get this one guy named Marty Trammell to come and share with us one day. Uh, he's kind of a guru on love, he, love doctor, and uh, many of you may not know I some things know about that. Marty. I want to just briefly tell you a few things. One of the reasons... Right now before he says anything. Wait a second. You, you can't talk yet. You've got to mute yourself. I thought maybe if I went up right now, you'd... No, I, no let me say a few things. <laughs> uh, Marty is, uh, as I look back on my life, Marty was my youth pastor. So some of you young kids up here, you're going, okay, Dylan's my youth pastor. Marty was my youth pastor invested in my life, middle school and high school, and um, taught me to love God with all of my heart, taught me to love the Seattle Seahawks, because originally he's from Washington, and uh, showed me a lot of good things in life. I then went to college at what is now Corbin University, and I couldn't get away from him. He was uh, uh, teaching my classes. He's been teaching at Corbin University for, what, 30-plus years? And so uh, he was my speech teacher, and um, I, I won't tell you what grade he gave me. I'm not sure. I thought he was a little hard on me being part of his youth group. I don't know. But anyway, Marty has just been a wonderful person in my life throughout the years. Uh, his, one of his sons was in our wedding years ago. Marty wrote a book entitled Redeeming Relationships, and so we thought, you know what, he would have something to say on this. He still works at this church that I attended growing up as a kid, Valley Baptist in Perrydale, where he is the family and worship pastor there. He's been married to his wife, Linda, for 35 plus years. So would you welcome onto the stage today, doctor, teacher, Mr. Marty Trammell. I was trying to interrupt that introduction so it wouldn't embarrass me too much up here, so thanks, Scott. I mentioned in the first service this morning that it is an honor to be with you, and I know when I was younger, I would sit out in the audience when a guest came and said it's an honor to be with you. I always wondered, do they really mean that? You know, are they really honored to be with us? And I mean that from the bottom of my heart, first of all, because we're all related. There are a lot of you I've never met, and most of you today I won't be able to meet in the course of today's events, but we're all related in Christ. And so whether we're friends now or not, we're all going to be friends in heaven someday. So it is an honor to be with you. And then secondly, it's an honor because of some of the people you have here. I look out there and I see Coyce Miller. And as Scott said, I served out in Valley Baptist of Perrydale, still do. Dave was the pastor there and really mentored me in the ministry. And so Coyce was the second mom to my wife, Linda. And so uh, it's just great to see you again, Coyce. And I still think of your husband a lot, as I know you do, and we miss him. Uh, but his life is a part of our lives. And so appreciate that. And then, of course, Scott and Mike, his brother, appreciate them so much, too. And Scott, I'd just like to say as a fellow pastor, uh, I met some wonderful people here. And uh, God's doing a great work through you here at the church. In fact, I'll, I'll just mention something that might not really mean anything to anybody but me, and that is uh, I was talking to your worship pastor, uh, Chris, and at the end of the morning service, he says, hey, I've got a better song. I'm going to end the second service with this new song. So he rushes off with his team, puts it together just to end the service a little bit better, and I thought, wow, there are very few churches that have people like that in their staff. So I appreciate that too, but that's part of your leadership too, Scott, giving people the freedom to use their gifts and appreciate that so very much. Well, the title, Redeeming Relationships, as Scott mentioned, is something that's been very near and dear to my heart. I uh, was raised in an American Christian family, and by that I mean uh, lots of Americans at that time went to church, basically because it's what Americans did, and, uh, but there wasn't a lot of uh, the church in our home day after day. And so I grew up uh, where God had laid on my heart. I came to Christ when I was seven. And uh, redeeming relationships just became part of my everyday life. 
In fact, one of the reasons I loved church so much every time the door was open, uh, I was there, it was because church was a sanctuary for me. It was a place of peace, a place of shalom, and a place of joy and a refuge. And uh, so as I went through elementary school and up into high school, I remember at my public high school in Seattle, uh, God just started sending people into my life. When a class was over, a young person would come up and say, man, I'm having this problem with this girl that I like or with my parents or whatever. And God began to use me to redeem those relationships. And then as I got into college and I met my wonderful wife, Linda, who I'll introduce in a moment, but um, we began uh, to share that ministry together. Traveled for a year uh, in a music team that also did a lot of counseling with high school groups. And uh, now we do premarital counseling for couples and we also do marriage counseling. Trust me, the premarital is a lot more fun than the marriage counseling. But uh, as we've gotten older, we um, unfortunately for them, um, you know, are doing marriage counseling for sometimes some of the pastors in Salem if their marriages start to fall apart because of the stress of ministry. Um, you know, we're involved in that counseling too. So this whole theme that you guys are working through is something that is near and dear to our hearts. I did want to thank the sound crew again and, and the people running lights for helping out this morning. I rushed in with a PowerPoint and they just immediately said, hey, we'll do what we can to make it work. And I really appreciate that. And then the worship team as well, thank you again for leading us, Chris. Appreciate that. So I do want to introduce my wife, though. Scott's already mentioned we've been married 35 years as of this October 28th. So this is Linda right over here. And she, yes, clap for her. She is actually the reason I have my nickname at the university, Dr. Love, that Scott was talking about. And I'll, I'll tell you this, having gone to secular universities most of my academic life, um, that is not a great name to have at a secular university. So when I first heard it, I was like, what? How in the world? And they said, because you talk about Linda all the time. And I was like, okay, I'm okay with that. You know, but um, anyway, so she is the reason uh, that um, the young people come into my office and ask about relationships. We have a lot of young men who've grown up without dads. I know you're aware of that. And so they'll come in and say, I don't know what to do. I didn't date in high school and here I am and I don't have a dad to talk to. Would you pray with me about who I should date somewhere along the line? And of course, I'm happy to do that. But that all happened because of my childhood and the way God raised me and then also the person I married. So thanks, honey. Without you, I wouldn't be doing this today. So let's pray and then we'll get into the word. Father, we do thank you so very much for the amazing God that you are, the songs that we just sang together, Father, are about you and about how amazing your love is for us, how amazing your grace is, how amazing the peace that you give to us is. Father, we're thankful for these things, but especially today, we're grateful for the relationships, for the friendships that we know, uh, the relatives that we have, for our spouses. God, we're grateful for these gifts. And we ask, Father, as we work through the word today, that your spirit would help us, that we'd understand it and be able to apply it in a way that honors you. Father, as only you can do, please help your spirit to move me out of the way and make this your time about your word. I ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So we are talking about redeeming relationships. Up on the slide there, we're going to be in the book, The Song of Songs, and also John chapter 10. And parents, please don't worry. I'm choosing very tame passages in the Song of Songs, those of you who've read it. Although I would suggest this, maybe by the end of today, uh, a lot of the couples here would, if you've never read the Song of Songs together, uh, maybe you would begin. It's a great and amazing book in the scriptures, and that's where we'll be headed. But I do want to talk a little bit about this article. I think it makes a great introduction for what we're going to focus on today. It was in the New York Times, and it's an article about um, a study that was done. And rather than explain the study to you, I'm going to show you a video clip of that study and what this author learned from it. I published this article in the New York Times Modern Love column in January of this year. 
fall in love with anyone do this. And the article is about a psychological study designed to create romantic love in the laboratory. And my own experience trying to study myself one night last summer. So the procedure is fairly simple. Two strangers take turns asking each other 36 increasingly personal questions, and then they stare into each other's eyes without speaking for four minutes. So here are a couple sample questions. Number 12, if you could wake up tomorrow having gained any one quality or ability, what would it be? Number 28, when did you last cry in front of another person or by yourself? As you can see, they really do get more personal as they go along. Number 30, I really like this one. Tell your partner what you like about them. Be very honest this time. Saying things you might not say to someone you just met. So when I first came across this study a few years earlier, one detail really stuck out to me. And that was the rumor that two of the participants had gotten married six months later. And they'd invited the entire lab to the ceremony. So I was, of course, very skeptical about this process of just manufacturing romantic love. But of course, I was intrigued. And when I got the chance to try the study myself, with someone I knew but not particularly well, I wasn't expecting to fall in love. But then we did. And, <laughs> and I thought it made a good story, so I sent it to the Modern Love column a few months later. Now, if we had time to listen to the rest of it, uh, the end of the TED Talk ends with the story that they did get married. So the question that she raises in the article is, can love, can real love be manufactured? And when I first read the article, I thought back to an experience that I had at the university in a sort of a class environment that we called freshman seminar or core group. And what it is, you get a group of about 15 to 20 uh, Corbin students together, freshmen from all around the country, and they're all in these little groups. It's a discipleship ministry that we have at the university. But one of the activities that we do in those little groups is something like this, only it's called the dyadic encounter. It's only 30 questions. Now, we normally do it by gender. So a male is with a male and a female is with a female. What's very interesting is at the end of the dyadic encounter, 30 questions, we don't stare into each other's eyes for four minutes, like, like they talked about there, but um, they become friends. People who never met each other before that day became friends. And to watch them hang out on campus, it's just fascinating to see. But every once in a while, we'd have an uneven number of males and females. So we'd end up putting a male and a female together for that activity. And what's interesting is I know of one marriage that came from that activity. Two people who had never met until they did the dietic encounter. They grew to become friends and then got married as a result. The question can real love be manufactured, is actually answered, I think, in Scripture. And it has to do a lot with our theology of love. So we're going to look at that together. If you want to turn to John 10, you'll see this in the passage. Jesus is talking to uh, a group of religious leaders, uh, Jewish leaders, and he's trying to explain to them that saying you're of your father Abraham is not enough. See, the, all the Jews wanted a Messiah to do was to come in and rid them of Roman rule so they could continue their Jewish traditions. Because after all, they're leaders. They don't want to lose their leadership. They want to keep their religion the way it is. But Jesus is going to come in and change it all. He's going to change it all. And so they don't really want that, so they don't really like this guy. Even though he's just healed a blind man, done this miracle, they don't want to believe him. Because, after all, they're of their father Abraham. They don't need Jesus. That's their view. But Jesus reminds them when he says this, The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. See, that's a strange statement for the Son of God to make about the Father. You would assume that the Father has unconditional love for the Son which he does. But he also has another type of love. Now, I'm not going to go as far as calling it conditional love. I know that would offend some people. 
But the text specifically says, Jesus himself says it, the Father loves me for reasons. And then he gives us two reasons there. One, I lay down my life. And two, I take it up again. So can we manufacture love? The answer is yes, because love is based on reasons. And I'll tell you, when I have a man come into my office or come to our home and say our marriage has fallen apart, we're separated, she left yesterday, I don't know what to do, it's over. Some of those men come in and they feel like it's so hopeless that they're ready to start talking about, okay, what are the legalities? How do we make this divorce work? And I'm not an attorney, but as a pastor, you know, I'm there to listen and to pray with them and to help. What's fascinating to me and sad to me is that somehow they bought into the idea that if my marriage isn't full of just unconditional love, it's not a marriage. And the other part of the theology of love tells us that we love for reasons. So I'll usually tell them, no, wait, let's not give up yet. Tell me something you've done for your wife recently. Is there a way that you laid down your life for her? Is there a way that you took it up again and loved her? And usually they'll say, no, it's just been miserable for the last months or even years. So then I'll tell them, here's what I want you to do. And I'll just ask them to do one act of kindness to show her that they love her. And I'll ask them to do it each day of the week. And then sometimes the marriage is healed. Sometimes it's as simple as realizing we all love for reasons. We're created in the image of God, and he loves for reasons. He loves unconditionally, but he loves for reasons too. So this passage in John made me reflect then on the Song of Solomon. And I began to ask the question, okay, the Song of Solomon is about love, so does the Song of Songs show us that the husband and wife love each other for reasons? And if it does, what are those reasons? And we're going to take the two in the blue up on the screen there, lay down my life and take it up again. And we're going to trace those through the Song of Songs this morning. Like her uh, father in heaven, the husband and wife of the Song of Songs, or like their father in heaven, the husband and wife of the Song of Songs love for reasons. That's what we're going to see. I love this quote. This comes from Glickman's commentary on the Song of Songs. And he says, the heart of love, that is God, the heart of love, revealed love not in science but in song. The best songs let men see love, and the great songs let them feel love. One song, it was rumored, had even the power to instill love. The ancient poet spoke in awe its name, the Song of Songs, they whispered. There's a great history to the interpretation of the Song of Songs. Uh, most of you are aware that for centuries, even the Christian church has interpreted it as God's love for Israel or Christ's love for the church. But that originally, if you were to read the oral legends, remember the Jewish people, when they came back from Babylon, all their commentaries on all the books of the Bible, the Old Testament had been destroyed. So the Mazorah is the oral tradition, and it tells the story of how the Song of Songs was used for classes like marriage um, discipleship or marriage counseling. It's also used to help couples learn what to look for as they started to date. In fact, uh, in chapel in February this year, that's what I'm going to be talking about on Valentine's Day to the young people at Corbin is how to use the Song of Songs to figure out what kind of person should I marry because the Song of Songs helps do that. But after all those commentaries were lost, one of the leading or the leading Jewish rabbi went through a period in his own life of asceticism. And asceticism simply says the body is evil, only the spirit is good. And whenever Christian people, Jewish people, go through times of asceticism, whether in their own lives or, or culturally in the society at large, they begin to interpret the Bible that way too. So for instance, that's why the Song of Songs was no longer talked about, about being about human love. Instead, it is about God's love for Israel or Christ's love for the church. And certainly the Song of Songs is about God's love, but it is about human love. And I'll show that to you as we go through uh, some things in the Song of Songs. But what we're going to keep in mind is that Solomon and his bride show us 
that we really do love for reasons, and then to give each other those reasons to be and to feel loved. I do want to say this too. Some of you are probably wondering, well, Solomon was not the most moral of kings in the Bible, and that's very true. The Jewish legend for this, this is not what the book of Kings says, but the Jewish legend says this, that a year and a half into Solomon's first marriage, his wife passes away. And in the grief period of his life, he experiences and writes the book of Ecclesiastes. That's the grief period of his life. And we don't know from any oral traditions or other records at all whether he finishes Song of Solomon after that or before that. That's the part we still don't know. Maybe someday some archaeologists will dig something up, but we still don't know that. So I think it's best for us to think of it this way. Solomon did write the book. He wrote it as the wisest man who ever lived. Wisdom doesn't necessarily keep you from sin, okay? It will help, but it is not a guarantee, okay? So the wisest man who ever lived is represented by Solomon in the book. The wisest woman who ever lived is represented by someone we call Shulamith, or sometimes Terza, depending on the commentator that you read. She's unnamed in the book, which is another reason why I think it's appropriate that since she's unnamed, we realize they're both symbols. She's the symbol for Lady Wisdom mentioned in the book of Proverbs. He's the symbol for wisdom. So it's Mr. and Mrs. Wisdom talking to each other. What's fascinating about the book is if you start with the very first verse, she says it. And women, if you were to read that verse and ask yourself one question, why does wisdom say this? It would change your life. For every single expression she makes in the book. And men, for us, every single time Solomon speaks, if we would say, why does Solomon say that? Why does a wife need to hear that? Why does Solomon do that? Why does a wife need to have that done, we would have some of the wisest marriages you'd ever seen. Wouldn't protect us from all sin, but a majority of it. And what it would do is give us the kind of relationship that God really wants us to know, the relationship that I'll show you at the end of the book. But let's move into why the book is not a loose collection of love poetry like your study Bibles in front of you say. I'd like to show you something that I learned Precisely because God, instead of allowing me to be the community or the theology major that I wanted to be, um, he made me an English major. So I'm the chair of the English program at Corbin because that's my degree. And I read the Song of Solomon as a literature major, not as a seminary student. So I'll show you the difference and I think you'll see it very easily here. It is not a loose collection of love poetry. It is very well connected. So in the beginning of the Song of Songs, she says this, my own vineyard I've neglected. And what she's doing is she's going through this period in her life where she's struggling with her self-image. She's struggling with how she feels about who she is to Solomon, her husband, and she's hurting. And in this time of hurt, she says these words, my own vineyard I've neglected. Now, if you read through the book and just write down every time the word vineyard is used and what's, what the context is, you'll discover that the vineyard is the inside of her life, her heart, her spirit, her soul, and the outside of her life, her physical body. It's both. So she says, my own vineyard I've neglected. Basically, my life is not what I'd hoped it would be. What's interesting is that because of the curse on this planet, practically every woman feels that way at one time or another. Now, it's also true that we as men feel that way as well. But part of the wisdom we could learn as husbands is to realize that sin broke us and it also broke our wives. It's not just sin that came into the world, the scriptures tell us. Death came too. And it's not just physical death, it's spiritual death, emotional death, psychological death. All of that came into our world. Marriage helps change that. So what we see here is that she's feeling that at the beginning of the book. It reminds me of Janice Ian's Grammy-winning song. Some of you will remember this from the late 60s, early 70s. It's a song called At 17. 
This is what she wrote. I learned the truth at 17, that love was meant for beauty queens. And those of us with ravaged faces, lacking in the social graces, desperately remained at home, inventing lovers on the phone, who called to say, come dance with me, and murmured vague obscenities. It isn't all it seems at 17. To those of us who knew the pain of Valentine's that never came, when dreams were all they gave for free, to ugly duckling girls like me. And men, there are times in our wives' lives when they either felt that way or feel that way. In a book that was written 3,000 years ago, the ancient wisdom of that book tells us to keep that in mind as we love. But women, it's true too of your husband. The fact that the Song of Songs is a song, that's the genre that it's in, the fact that it's part of the wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, tells us that what is true of the woman in the Song of Songs as lady wisdom is also true of the man. It's just the way the story is being told and the way the narrative works in this song, she's the one who's being changed and redeemed. The truth is, husbands are redeemed by marriage too. So here's where we see it. The very end of the book, the last chapter, notice the words in black. They're identical, aren't they? My own vineyard, my own vineyard. So the beginning of the book and the last chapter of the book are tied together. That is not a loose collection of love poetry. And that's why I believe it's pedagogical. It's teaching me as a man the kinds of things I should say, the kinds of things I should do for the one my heart loves. It's teaching women the kinds of things they should do and the kinds of things they should say for the one their heart loves. And then really for those of you who aren't married, the principles in their work for every friendship, the ones I'm going to share today, there are other principles you're not supposed to experiment with until you're married, okay? But we'll leave those out of today's discussion. But really the friendship principles are the same. The ones I'm going to talk about today are ones you could do for each other. Children, you could do them for your parents to say, oh, dad, I love you, mom, I love you. Or parents, you could do them for your children. Really helps us redeem all our relationships. So the book is really um, showing us in the theater of our minds that one of the most intoxicating aspects of marriage, marriage is friendship, is the romance of redeeming love. And I really like the word intoxicating there because we struggle with that word as conservative Christians. The scriptures teach we're not to be intoxicated with wine, wherein there is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, right? There's a contrast there. So I can't be, and I can't really use that passage to say I'm supposed to be drunk with the Spirit, but there is a comparison and a contrast that's being made. So I'm supposed to, in the Spirit, let myself think Freely think about God and his word and what he's doing in the world around him, his creation. It's okay for me to get lost in that, to be intoxicated in that sense of the word by God. The only other time I can be intoxicated in scripture is in my relationship with my wife. I can lose myself in that. That's part of how God designed it. And that's why it's related and saved for marriage. That's why God wants it to be that way. So purity protects us not only from sin and all the things that happen with it, the diseases and the guilt and the shame. Purity protects us for the delight that God intended for marriage to bring and for the redemption that he wants to secure in you and me through romance. That's the way God designed it. Okay, so uh, how does it look in our lives? I want us to think about um, this lay down our lives that Jesus talked about in John 10. Where do we see that in the Song of Songs? So here's an example. She said, my own vineyard I've neglected, and she's hurting, she's wounded, she's broken. How does Solomon respond? Okay, this is what the text tells us. That in one high bound, love, this love that Solomon shows, 
has overlapped the massive wall of our selfhood. It has made appetite itself altruistic, tossed aside personal happiness as triviality, and planted the interest of another in the center of our being. That's what it's done. Okay, and that's what Solomon is going to show us here. Here's what he says. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. She's just said in the first verse of chapter 2, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley, the two most common flowers in Israel. I'm just a common flower. What does Solomon do? He lays down his life, now, not in some huge way like sacrificing himself, but taking time out of his day, dealing with the fact that he may not even like working with words. He may not like poetry. He may not like English. He may not like language. But he's going to learn to love through his words. That's the kind of laying down of our life that we need to do. When I was a little boy, and I, I think a lot of little boys are this way, um, we grow up thinking someday... I'm going to be that knight in shining armor and I'm going to save the damsel from the dragon, right? Never realizing that the dragon is my own laziness. That's what I got to slay. Never realizing that the dragon is my own ignorance. That's what I've got to change. That's what makes marriage work when I'm willing to lay down my life. So what he does is he says, no, honey, you got it wrong. You're not like a lily and a rose of Sharon, you're like a lily among thorns. All the other women are thorns compared to you. Now, ladies, doesn't that sound pretty good? You can nod your head. Okay? Yeah. And some of you have husbands who say things like that to you. And it ministers to your heart. And day after day after day, as they talk to you with those kinds of terms, you're changed. You see, the romance is God the Father loving you through your husband. Or God the Father loving me through my wife. That's the romance of redeeming love. Okay, so we see it there in the words, but also in their actions. Romantic actions redeem us. What does he do? Chapter 1, verses 3 through, or 9 through 11. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. Now, when I read this, I, uh, and Linda, Linda was oblivious to this, but I had all my Song of Solomon commentaries out on the table. I probably have 40 or 50 commentaries on the Song of Solomon. I had some articles out. I've collected dissertations for students' doctoral programs on the Song of Solomon. And I'm going through all of them because I have been frustrated by this verse. I cannot figure out why the commentators won't comment on why the pronoun changes from I, I will make you earrings of gold, to we. And nobody comments on it, just that says in the Hebrew, it is the plural. Okay? We will make you. And then it just skips the rest of the meaning. So I'm just sitting there, and this is after weeks of looking through the passage, while I'm doing other things. I mean, I have a job, obviously, but I'd come home at night and work through this stuff, and in the morning try to think it through. So I finally, out of frustration, said to my wife, I can't figure out why she says... Or he says, we will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. Now, again, picture this. She has no idea that's what I've been working on. She just looks right at me and goes, well, because every woman likes it when her husband involves other people in the making of a gift. And I was like, no way. And it was true. That's what the verse is talking about. So it's one thing for me on our anniversary, August 28th, to go, oh, no, it's our anniversary <laughs> to drive over to Walmart, grab a card, grab some flowers, grab a gift, drive home, surprise her and say, ha, it's our anniversary. You know, she'd still like that. Linda's just that way. She'd still love me and accept me for that. But it's another for me to start planning three months in advance. This is what we're going to do on the anniversary. This is the gift I'm going to make for her. I'm going to involve some other people in the making of this gift. Why? I don't need to understand why it ministers to her. I need to know that it does and do that. Okay, I think I can understand why because involving other people in the making of gifts would mean that she's important to me and all those other people are seeing how important she is to me and that ministers to her heart and her soul. So this verse right there includes some of the actions that we can do 
for the people that we love. But young people, I see all of you. I think it's great that you sit in the front, by the way. That's inspiring. I just want you to know. So um, you can do this for your friends, right? You can learn to choose words and, and sacrifice some of your own personal time to choose the right words to say to a friend, you mean a lot to me, right? And then you can do the same thing with your actions. Figure out ways. What, what would mean a lot to dad? Well, my dad loves this. So if I do that for dad, he'll love that or for mom. You can learn to love the people around you that way. And if you learn it now, when you get ready to be married someday, it'll be part of your character. And trust me, it'll make marriage so much easier than trying to learn it then. Okay, so it's a great thing to be working on now. So reason one, do I lay down my life is the question that I have for myself. What romantic words and actions redeem the one my heart loves? That's what, you know, if I were taking notes right now, I would just start jotting some things down. Hey, what would mean a lot to the one my heart loves, to my spouse, to my friends? Reason two is this. Jesus said he laid down his life. This is one of the reasons the Father loved him, only to take it up again. So what is that about? Well, if Jesus remained in the tomb, we all know what life would be like. We would have had a sacrifice for our sin, but no one after that. No relationship after that. It's always fascinated me that in Christian circles, we like to go by our titles. Scott called me Dr. Trammell. I do have a doctorate, but you know at the university, I go by Marty. I don't go by Dr. Trammell. So my students call me Marty. Why? Because when Jesus left this earth, you know what he said to his disciples? I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And if the God of the universe put aside all his authority and all the respect due his name, to call them friends, I want to do the same thing. I want to be that same kind of person. And that's really why we have a living Savior. He's alive. He's not a dead Savior. So we shouldn't be a dead spouse. Well, I got married, and then my life was over. You hear people joke about that, right? But then you watch the way they live, and you wonder if it's a joke at all. Right? She married a Christian corpse, poor lady. You know, that's how we feel sometimes. But the point is, we take up our lives again like Jesus did. No matter what kind of hardships we go through in loving our friends and loving our spouses, we take up our lives again. Okay? We let, we let the winter melt away and turn into spring. And we take it up again. And we resume the actions. And we resume using the words that redeem that relationship. That's what God wants us to do. So this is what she says to him at the very end of the book. And this is why I wanted to talk about the joy and the delight of married love. Come away with me or come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. Now, this is an emotional and a physical image. I think it's one we can handle. What she's basically saying is... Our marriage ought to be delight. It ought to bring delight. That's the young stag and gazelle, not the old one, you know. It's the young one. So if you've watched a movie like Bambi, right, you see the little young deer. What are they doing? They're dancing and jumping around and playing. That's what love's supposed to be like no matter our age. See, some of the young people here, you're saying, Marty, you're old. You can't tell me that love is just as meaningful for you now as it was when you were first married. And I can honestly tell you this, and I'm sure there are many older people in this room who would agree, we'll never be able to convince you of this until you go through it yourself. But it means more now than it did then. I can remember when I was your age, having an older person like myself stand up in front and say, yeah, love means more today than it did on our honeymoon. You're like, no way, you have wrinkles. I remember thinking that. That person has wrinkles. They can't be as attractive to their spouse. Their spouse can't be as attractive to them. Well, Linda may not have wrinkles, but I have wrinkles, okay? But I can tell you this. Love changes you. 
And deep and abiding love causes you to love someone for their character more than just the outside. In fact, it's the outside, it's the character that makes the outside so beautiful. So when people say to me, oh, there are a lot of beautiful women in the world, I'm like, doesn't make sense to me. I know what they're talking about because I grew up in the United States. I know what they're talking about. But Linda is the most beautiful woman in the world to me. And I'm not just saying that because I'm up in front of you. You can ask her in private. You can pay her to tell you something else, okay? But she is the most beautiful woman in the world to me. Why? Because of her character. In fact, you know what's fascinating about the Song of Songs? The very first thing that's mentioned, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, she says. Guys, wouldn't it be nice to marry someone who said, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth in front of her friends? Wouldn't that make you feel like a stud? Be like, whoa, okay. And it would do that. But here's what she says, because your name, your character is like perfume poured out. Your character is extravagant, okay? So it's extravagant character that we love, and it's extravagant character that excites us. And by the way, this is why men, those of us who are in ministry, or even if you're not in ministry, this is why you have to be careful, and I have to be careful. I'm around a lot of Christian women who love God with their whole heart. Do you think I have any friendships with them? Nope, I don't. Are we surface friends? Yeah, we serve together and all that, but we do not share emotional concerns with each other. Why? Because... I could fall in love with somebody's character. When I was first married, the man who did my premarital counseling committed adultery. He was a pastor. Shortly after that, about a year later, another pastor I I, uh, admired committed adultery. And I sat with both of them, and this is what they told me. It wasn't physical attraction. It didn't start there. It started with being attracted to the fact that we were in the ministry together. We loved people together. We loved God together. And I was attracted to that in her. And then I became physically attracted. By the way, this is also why arranged marriages work better than our marriages. As far as the statistics toward divorce. Because people in arranged marriage know they're going to have to work to find love. We think we just find love when somebody walks in the room. Oh, there she is. I'm going to marry that woman. Have you heard those stories? Yeah, ask the guy how many times he actually said that before it was about her. Have you ever asked that question? Okay, so we grow in our love, okay? It's something that changes, but this is what God wants it to be. He wants it to be a relationship of delight and joy, but it takes giving somebody reasons to love us that way. What are you doing here? Just hanging out with some old friends. You knew all along, didn't you? You knew the dam was unstable. It hadn't been for the Ark, my family, the neighbors. I fought you every step of the way. Yes, but you did it. So you had nothing to do with the flood? Like where the Ark landed exactly? I gave you a little shove at the end. Sue me. <laughs> you did good, son. You changed the world. No. No, I didn't. Well, let's see. Spending time with your family, making them very happy. Gave that dog a home. <laughs> right, so? So, how do we change the world? One act of random kindness at a time. One act of random kindness. Do you catch the biblical allusion there? There's the dove, right? The dove has the olive branch in its mouth and it's flying off. And we just had a retelling of the story of the flood. Isn't that great? 
That's an easy biblical illusion to get. You know the one we don't get? Why did they do the dance? Why did they do that silly dance? It's Zephaniah 3.17 is why they do. Zephaniah 3.17 says he's the God who rejoices over you with singing. You know what that word rejoices is in the Hebrew? It's the word dance. He dances over you. That's how much God delights in you and me. He dances over us. So I loved watching this morning, and I don't know the young lady's name in the front row here, but you danced to the music, and that's what God does. He dances with singing over us. Now, the reason we didn't translate it dancing in some of your translations is it's kind of politically incorrect to do that as a Christian because dancing's kind of a bad thing in our culture, but it's not in God's culture. It's a great thing, and it's why people even dance today in their Jewish feasts and festivities and why many Christians are learning to dance to the Lord again. Why? Because God did it in Zephaniah chapter 3. So someone at the screenwriter's table who was putting together that movie, someone knew their Bible better than a lot of us. They knew Zephaniah 3.17, and that's why they had God and Evan dance at the end. And a lot of Christians miss it. We just don't see it because we don't understand the truth in the way that God sees us. So reason one, do I lay down my life in my words and my actions? And reason two, do I take up my life in my words and my actions? I'd like to share a story with you. I shared a story of a, in the first service, but I'm going to share a different one here because we have some of the same people, the worship teams and some of the pastors. But uh, in the first service, I talked about a proposal where they, the young man used the movie Tangled, okay, to propose to his fiancée. So I want to tell you one now about a helicopter story. So this was a young man at Corbin who loved his girlfriend and wanted to propose to her, but he came to Corbin a little bit different than other 18-year-old men. Well, he was 21, I guess, at this time when he proposed. He had already flipped houses at 18, 17 years of age. He had saved a lot of money to go to school. So he wanted to surprise his girlfriend. And what he did is he rented a helicopter. They had to file the flight plan like 30 days in advance so the helicopter could land in Corbin's soccer field. He had two of his friends dress up in suits and walk to his girlfriend's dorm room, have the RAs let him into the hall, and then they knocked on the door for him. She knew she was supposed to get dressed for a date, but she didn't know anyone was picking her up. They walked her, carrying a dozen roses, all the way down from the dorm to the soccer field, and there was this helicopter. So he takes her in the helicopter up to Portland. They land on one of the high-rises in Portland. They walk, or go down the elevator. They go across the street to a museum that they had first visited in that freshman seminar, that core group I was telling you about at the beginning. So he met her there. And that's when he first said, hey, do you want to go out to coffee? And she said, yeah. And now it's like three years later, and he's asking her to marry him. So what he'd done is he'd worked it out with the curator of the museum to use one of the unused rooms that was being repainted or something. And he had some lights on a velvet pad that was on some kind of stand and the ring and the words, will you marry me? Well, he's so excited. They get up onto that floor. They're walking through the museum and there are three old ladies standing there. They're all like, oh, this is so cute. He's like, oh, no. So he goes into the Egyptian exhibit, you know. He's trying to figure out something to do so that she won't see. So he keeps picking at, or peeking out, and pretty soon the women disappear. And they walk over to that room, and she reads, will you marry me? The very same place that he asked her to go out to coffee. And when she turns around, he's on his knee. That's what it's talking about. It's that kind of love that changes a woman's world. Do you think that woman left that day saying, boy, I'm just the most horrible woman who ever lived. Nobody loves me. You think she felt that way that day? And do you think when he did some things that weren't the best in his marriage and his character started to go down a little bit, do you think it ever went below zero? I still know the couple and I can tell you it hasn't. Why? Why? Because he found delight in the sacrifices that he made for her. 
And that's what the Song of Songs is teaching us, to lay down our lives and then to take them up again. Oops, let me go back for just a second. This is a story of a Nobel Prize winner. And in this story, this is from the movie A Beautiful Mind, and in this story, the Nobel Prize winner, before he wins the prize, when he's a young man, lives a very vain life. He's not faithful to his wife. He uses his popularity as a scholar to get all kinds of accolades. And then because of the stress of academic life, he goes through a period where he almost goes insane. It's a horrible physical malady period of his life, emotional distress. You know who stayed beside him? His wife. And he was healed. And pretty soon he went back to his work as a mathematician and won the Nobel Prize. Listen to what he says. This is a true story. I've always believed in numbers and the equations and logics that lead to reason. But after a lifetime of such pursuits, I ask, what truly is logic? Who decides reason? My quest has taken me through the physical, the metaphysical, the delusional, equations of love that any logical reasons can be found. I'm only here tonight because of you. You are the reason I am. It's a standing ovation on earth, but more importantly, it does in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we're very grateful for this book of the Bible, for you giving it to us 3,000 years ago so that we could learn to love. We thank you too for the deep and thrilling and abiding and intoxicating joy that it brings into our lives. Thank you for the delights of love. Thank you for romance. But above all, Father, thank you for yourself, the one who showed us the way to love. 